This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Welcome to The Waves, Slate's podcast about gender, feminism, and today, burning down Hollywood and its broken systems. Every episode, you get a new pair of feminists to talk about the thing that we cannot get off of our minds. And today, you've got me, Daisy Rosario, Senior Supervising Producer of Audio here at Slate. Later in the show, I'll be joined by Maureen Ryan, a contributing editor at Vanity Fair. She's a longtime entertainment journalist and TV critic whose book, Burn It Down, Power, Complicity, and a Call for Change in Hollywood was released earlier this year. Maureen, or Mo as she likes to be called, has written an in-depth and thorough accounting of various Hollywood horror stories from over the years. We're talking racism and sexual harassment in writers' rooms, powerful bosses mentally and physically abusing assistants, and most importantly, how none of these stories are examples of one bad apple. They all show how systems work to protect abusers with power and how even well-meaning people can get pulled into protecting bad behavior when that is what is rewarded. You might remember at the start of the summer hearing some wild details about what it was like for some writers and actors working on the hit TV show Lost. It must have been at about 40,000 feet when it happened. In an air pocket. Dropped. We crashed a thousand miles off course. They're looking for us in the wrong place. Stranded on an island. No one's coming for us. This place is different. We all know it. We all feel it. Those stories came from a chapter of this book that was previewed in Vanity Fair. This is a book that certainly could not exist without both the Black Lives Matter movement and the Me Too movement. People that never would have spoken to Mo before were willing to share about some of their worst and sadly frequent experiences. I wanted to hear from Mo about the process of writing this book and releasing it when we are already living in the backlash to the movements that made it possible to write the book in the first place. So stick around. I'll be right back with Mo Ryan after this break. Hey, Waves listeners, we hope that you are loving the show. And if you never want to miss an episode, you should definitely subscribe to our feed. New episodes come out every Thursday morning. While you're there, you should check out our other episodes. Last week, I spoke with RuPaul's Drag Race contestant, Mrs. Kasha Davis, about their life in drag and doing drag story hours for families. It was a great episode that you do not want to miss. 
Welcome back to The Waves. I am very excited to be joined today by Mo Ryan. Mo, thank you so much for coming on The Waves. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very happy to be here. I was really, really looking forward to reading your book when I saw that it was announced. You are a critic whose work I have followed for a while. And also we are, you know, we were in general the last many years kind of coming out of this time of reckoning, if you will, of people actually calling things out and some of those things that have been very hard to call out over the years being addressed. Good evening, and it's great to have you with us here to start another week. And we begin tonight with the Harvey Weinstein verdict, guilty of rape and criminal sexual assault, not guilty on three other counts. Tonight, he's been taken to New York's infamous Rikers Island, once one of the most powerful figures in Hollywood. Tonight, Weinstein is now behind bars. Night for Hollywood. Women and men taking the red carpet, wearing black, showing solidarity, passionately making a huge statement at the Golden Globes, calling for an end to harassment and gender inequality. And the passion reached its peak with Oprah. First black woman to get the Lifetime Achievement Award at the Globes. So I want all the girls watching here and now to know that a new day is on the horizon. So I guess where I really want to start is just kind of like, how did you get started writing this book? And (laughs) how long did it take you? (laughs) It took around two, two and a half years. The hardcore writing of it, I would say, occupied a lot of 2021 and all of 2022 and even bits of 2023, believe it or not. And, you know, as far as why do it, you know, I've been a journalist and a critic for 30 years. I really love, have always loved what I do. And and I really loved writing about popular culture um, with more of a focus on TV, in part because you can get at so much of just culture in the world and society, even politics with all of that. But since, as you say, since we've had a number of reckonings or the beginnings of a number of reckonings on a number of fronts. I felt like there hadn't been one book to tie it all together and to look at it from like the 10,000 foot view. Why, Why does this keep happening? There are so many bad outcomes in the industry or bad situations in the industry. Is it in fact a machine designed to create bad outcomes. You know, (laughs) I just got kind of ticked off. Two and a half years ago, I remember just being really tired of doing repetitive stories about like bad outcomes or bad situations, you know, toxic situations. And then also I got the sense that, oh, well, we talked about that. So it's okay now. Oh, did did we we talk? Did did we talk about it enough? First of all, <laughs> did we actually do the real talk that is awkward and messy and actually produces real change? And is that change being sustained, or did we put a square on our Instagram or like a hashtag on our social media and decide that that's finished now? It's like no, we can't. That's not enough. So um, you know, we shouldn't be surprised that an industry based around storytelling and performance can be performative in terms of change and evolution. That's okay. I'm not saying that as a burn. I'm saying we need to just also look at, okay, words matter, gestures matter, but what matters more is substantial, sustained change. And I didn't see that happening. You know, as somebody who is just over 40, like I can't help but notice that you know, there's some regression already happening. You even have a line in your book, um, Issa Rae acknowledges the the regression and how quickly it is coming on and, and making moves. But I am curious, you know, with, yeah, with Me Too being not that long ago, with 
the summer of 2020 not being that long ago with all of these things, but also the reality that we're living in where, you know, we are already in a backslide, in a backlash, in all of that. Um, What was it like or what has the reaction been, I guess, to, you know, you putting out this very thorough book? Well, uh, first of all, I want to just touch on something you said about the backsliding. And again, like being in this game for so long, I have seen the backsliding happen so many times. I have seen the stats go down. You know, there are some stats to do with Latinx uh, actors that have gone down. Like, you know, there are stats to do with women of color directors that have gone down. I have seen the industry talk a big game and then backslide again and again and again. There are a lot of tough revelations in the book and a lot of tough truths that are offered up. I do love the industry and what it produces in many ways. Not every part of the industry, of course. But I I think I come from just a, a family and personal and just my tradition in my world is if you care about something, you take it seriously. And if you take it seriously, you critique it and you talk rationally about what's wrong with it when it, there's something wrong. So the fact that people have been so willing to say not only that, yes, they are in agreement, there are many, many issues in the industry that have not been systematically addressed, not been institutionally addressed. And honestly, I got to say, one of the most overwhelming responses that I've gotten has been, I saw myself in these pages. I was not your source, but I saw the situations that I've been in. And that's really actually been a huge part of my career. There's, there's a feeling of relief that I think people feel when they feel validated in the idea, oh, it's not, it's not just me. It's, I'm not the only one saying this. You know, I mean, I think we've all been in that situation in life where it's like, am I wrong? Is, it, is, is my brain not working? Am I assessing the situation wrong? You start to feel absolutely gaslit and just like you're losing it human beings will make errors. But a lot of the time, what's happening in the industry is that people's own perception of right and wrong and what should or shouldn't happen is altered in a way that's not good for them. And I keep saying to people, and the, the book is you know 400 pages of me saying, honestly, it's really not you. It's how the industry is set up. And that has been so gratifying for people to go, okay, so it's not just me. You know, there's a many calls to action within the book. And that was really important to me to have that last third be, okay, stuff's messed up. How do we fix it? The timing of the book, I think, was a little fortuitous because the exploitation that resulted in things, you know, Me Too, writers of color, queer creators and writers and directors, like a, a lot of people from historically excluded communities have felt exploited or ignored or boxed out for years. So like all of these issues to do with exploitation, there's a number of ways that the industry keeps those mechanisms of exploitation and exclusion going. And the strike absolutely fits into the narrative of all of that because on top of an abusive working environment, you're also going to underpay me. And keep my image for all time and just use it whenever you want. (laughs) Right. Keep my image for all time. And make you know ensure that I um, never make a dime if I write the biggest runaway hit of all time. You know, like Me Too was a moment of people feeling fed up. I don't even necessarily like talk about 2020 as racial reckonings because I do think there were recognition that racism in the industry exists, but it's very much up in the air whether that even 
goes beyond the opening stages in Hollywood, which is very much about the performative gestures, not so much about apportioning power more equally. I think a lot of people were very fed up for a long time. And so you saw these explosions of testimony and truth and storytelling and revelations. And this is a continuation of that. This is just people finding community. And in that community, all of them going, oh, it isn't just me. A lot of people are being screwed over as well. Okay, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not losing my mind. You know, you mention and, and acknowledge in many ways that you're like, the, the, this does happen across industries and that this is the industry that you know well and that you're plugged into. And so this is where you're going to focus. But it is something that happens in so many places. You know, you were saying earlier that you get so many people saying, oh, I see myself in these stories. And I absolutely felt that way. And I mean, I do have some, I do have some, you know, time that I spent in Hollywood, uh, you know, moved there after college to do the acting and stand-up comedy thing, if you will, worked very closely with a few people who have become, you know, well-known, have a lot of friends who are writers. For me to move into journalism, I felt like I started seeing so many of the same behaviors, the same structures in in places, you know, people having their little fiefdoms. But it is, it's so similar. These things look and feel so similar in so many different industries. I think we're starting to have more reckonings about what I call either creative industries or storytelling industries. A lot of those industries revolve around brutal gatekeeping and brutal hazing to even stay in them. That's very true of Hollywood. It's true of journalism. It's true of fashion. It's true of music. Let's keep talking about how exploitative these industries can be. It's very much the lower rungs of any creative industry. It's about keeping people out or seeing how much pain or torture or toxicity you will take at the lower levels to ascend to a higher level at which, guess what? Your job might still be precarious and you're probably still underpaid, but oh gosh, you know, you work for this prestigious outlet and so forth. Here's an interesting difference that I've noticed in this strike. So I covered the 2008, 2000, 2007, 2008 Writers Guild of America strike very closely. And one thing that was a big thing that kind of people like me were combating 15 years ago during that strike was this idea that Hollywood means mansion. I mean, I honestly wish I could time travel and just excise entourage from people's brains. Johnny Chase, the monkey boy. F. Vince, how are you? Good to see you. Johnny's my brother, and he swears it wasn't him that let the monkeys free. Well, what's the real story, John? Well, Mr. Hefner, I'm not one to rat. But it was this guy that sprung the apes. With all due respect, Mr. Hefner, I never went near that zoo. Never. Well, you boys better remember who did. You're both out of here. Yeah, well, it was a that time. reinforced and cemented this idea in the public's brain that if you go to LA, you're probably going to end up in a mansion like so, at some point. And like, oh, maybe it'll be a little bit difficult, but you'll have support systems and friends and people who maybe you argue with. or But essentially, you'll land on your feet. Whereas, you know, the reality is like, you have six roommates and you're sleeping on a mattress on the floor and you can barely pay your bills. And that's after you've maybe even gotten a job as an assistant. Like, you know, it's very, very rough, very rough financially, very rough psychologically. The hours are rough. Everything about it is really hard. 15 years ago, people thought, well, if if you're a director in the industry, if you're a working TV writer, if you're a working actor, you're probably pretty set. I mean, even then it wasn't necessarily true. It's a very 
uncertain, unstable industry. Even now, it's even less true. I actually think that it's harder to not just get in the door, but stay there. Very tough to make it. Many reasons are driving the strike. But a big point I wanted to make in the book, and I would love to reemphasize it here, is that someone working in an Amazon warehouse and someone working a low-level job at Amazon in their TV or film realm or on an Amazon show's set, their predicaments are not different. Because not making a ton of money, working long hours perhaps, not a lot of job security, not a lot of benefits unless someone is in a guild or a union or whatever. You see Amazon warehouse workers doing something that Hollywood industry workers did actually starting around 90 years ago, if not more. Hollywood workers realized a long time ago, they do view us as disposable widgets, no matter what they're going to view us that way. And that's certainly true now. But if we don't unionize, we will be destroyed. And there was a a really interesting article in the Los Angeles Times about Squid Game and about production conditions in uh, South Korea. Squid Game was an enormously popular show all across the world on Netflix. You get paid by the day. And if the production decides that a 24-hour shoot like literally it's a day goes for the entire 24 hours. You just get that one fee for being on your feet, being at work 24 hours. And that's what would be happening here. And I bet some studios wish that was happening here. All right, we are actually going to take a quick break here. But if you want to hear more from The Waves on another topic, check out our Sleep Plus segment, where today we're continuing our recap of HBO's Sex and the City sequel series, and just like that. This week, Shana Roth and Heather Schwedell are talking episode eight. Now, that content is only available to Sleep Plus members. If you are already a member, thank you. Your support means that we get to keep bringing you all the sleepness that you love. And if you're not a member yet, please consider joining. Members get benefits like zero ads on any Slate podcast, no hitting the paywall on the Slate site, and bonus content of shows just like this one. You also can get bonus content for Amicus, Slow Burn, and so many more. To learn more, go to slate.com forward slash the waves plus. All right, welcome back to The Waves. I'm Daisy Rosario, and I'm talking all about why we need to burn Hollywood down with Mo Ryan. So, I mean, a lot of what your book gets into is, you know, these stories of abuse, of harassment, and how these things are structural, right? And so, obviously, when we think of Me Too, I think a lot of people understand that it is, you know, kind of more specifically, people are often talking about, like, experiences of sexual harassment and assault and things like that. But you know, there's kind of more just general abuse and poor treatment that also affects everyone in the industry, but can be especially hard on the women and people of different backgrounds as well. I think like you really see in these stories, like even even very powerful women or women that we would say consider powerful in their circumstances, you know, had to deal with a lot of this. I think that the story is still being written on that front, really, because I'm still having things land in my inbox or people reach out to me with stories of how they are, women especially, women, non-binary folks, queer folks, especially women of color, 
they are facing a host of obstacles still every single day. And a big one is, and this is something that I've really dwelled on for much of my career is, how do we even see a leader? Who do we see a leader as? You know, there, there are references in the book to women advocating for themselves and people are just uh, rolling their eyes, you know, and or reacting poorly. I mean, I think women still face an array of degrading obstacles. And on the pay front, there's nowhere near parity in terms of who gets paid the most, who gets the power positions in the executive suite, or as a showrunner, as the uh, person making calling the shots, being in charge. You know, I've, I've tracked stats on who creates the TV shows that we watch, the TV shows and films. It's If we were following just a mere demographic reality, half of the directors, half of the creators would be women. That's not the case. It always stalls out around 30, 35%. To some degree, streaming platforms have had a better track record in terms of hiring women to be creators. But even there, it stalls out around 33, 35%. Not to be that numbers person again, but there's one number that I cannot get out of my head and it lives rent-free and it probably always will. But uh, USC has this great um, center, the Annenberg Center. Basically, they track a lot of this data in terms of film and TV. Their meta study of 13, no, I think 1,600 films, so the top 100 grossing films over a period of 16 years, women of color directed 21 of them. I can't get that number out of my head. 21 films out of 1,600. So it's incredibly troubling to me that, that that's the kind of number that barely budges. And what you have in Hollywood is a lot of the powerful people I'm just going to say it, are well-meaning white people, and they take the anecdata, you know, that I, I, that's kind of the term for like, well, we hired this Guatemalan American woman to, to direct this episode of TV. That's great. Cool. That's great. She is a gig worker who's going from job to job. Who's in charge of your network? Who's in charge of your studio? You know, who's the producing director who created that show? And the barriers there are still incredibly real. And then what you get into, I don't love the term white fragility because I don't think it's fragile. I think it's often quite violent in terms of how people are treated, but you get this whole hurt feelings thing. And in Hollywood, you can't cross people. You can't make them feel negative feelings. You know, you can, I can because I don't work for these people. So what I try to do is ask the awkward questions and, and say, this is absolutely a fact. More women all backgrounds are being hired on screen. That is only making up for the relative lack of women's roles over time. So we're really just trying to catch up to where things long should have been. But in terms of who's creating those shows, especially as we move into the world where everything is based on existing IP, the vast majority of people in charge of telling those stories and supervising the tellers of those stories are white men. You know what else I was thinking of, you know, just as we were talking about the combination of this and opportunities and, you know, do they people get the opportunities is like one of the famous quotes or like lines that came out of the story about Orange is the New Black is when the head of Netflix is like at a party 
talking about, you know, he kind of slips for a minute, essentially, in front of the cast because they don't publish numbers. They don't tell people the stats, the data. They always say things like, it's the most viewed show. And you're like, cool. What does that even mean? You know, head of Netflix at at this party is like, Orange is the New Black was watched by more people than Game of Thrones. Which, you know, I mean, Game of Thrones in terms of like what it became in the culture, it was treated like HBO knows this is a big success. Everyone involved made more money as it went on. But besides that point, the two guys, the the two showrunners, like got so many opportunities. And I know that Genji Cohen has also done other work since, but I... Literally, I can think of projects that I know that the two guys who did Game of Thrones were given that were taken away. I know more about what they were given than anything that Genji Cohen has legitimately done since. And that's wild in and of itself. It's absolutely wild. I mean, you know, I love The Witcher, which is on Netflix, that has um, Lauren Schmidt-Hisrich. She's a great showrunner, you know. But again, I I went through as many high-level properties as I could. The Lucasfilm is a good example of this. You know, there is a new show called The Acolyte, which has Wesley Headland is like the chief sort of like writer creator of that. Um, I have yet to see a live action Star Wars film or TV show that was created and overseen from jump by a woman of color. There is a woman of color, I believe, Deborah Chow, associated with Obi-Wan. I do not believe she was like essentially the lead writer or the, the, but yeah, it's very rare to find in these high stakes, high name recognition IP realms, anyone but the usual suspects. Because if you're the head of the studio, oh, the guys who created Game of Thrones are a better bet. I would think that Genji Cohen would be too. But I, again, I, even, even when women have su- supposedly made it, why are they not in these conversations? Why is she not getting a Batman? You know, why is she not getting a Star Wars film? I, and maybe, for all I know, she doesn't want to do that. That's okay. You know, she, she should go, do, go off and do what she wants to do. But it's disheartening to me. I personally think that we are really in danger of, once again, homogenizing the culture that we see, the viewpoints that we see, you know, I talked about my book, um, Naren Shankar, who was the showrunner of a show called The Expanse. He's of South Asian heritage. And when the executives were like, hey, you know, this this role that um, you're talking about in the script is like, you know, a, a very tall Polynesian woman. What if it was a, a, blonde, a white blonde actress? And he was like, no, we're not doing that. And he was supported by all the other EPs. And, you know, so these little battles are fought every day, but the overall war, the direction of the war is being determined by people in these executive suites. And in these executive suites, they're willing to settle for tokenism still. And I think that that's not to me as a cultural critic, that's not enough. With the strikes that are happening right now, you know, the thing that I couldn't help but think about and that I think about in general when I see the strike, when I see the strike starting um, and hear about these terrible deals that people have been getting, you know, is that you also have all of these incredible talents who only broke through after, say, 2012 or so that are people of more diverse backgrounds and things like that. So writers of color, women, you know, in different roles and even their success that they had came at a time in the industry where they were not being fairly compensated for these things. So even we saw their names and their faces more, but they're just as precarious as ever, if not more. 
Oh, Daisy, I gotta tell you. <laughs> and this, this is very much happening in the IP world. So, oh, okay, so we cracked open the door. We're having somewhat more inclusive arrays of creators and leaders and, you know, number one on the call sheet and showrunners and directors and so forth. So why don't we just replace all those positions with AIs instead of continuing down the path toward at least some inclusion? And we all know that there's not enough of it. Let's just maybe not have people doing those jobs at all. It's like, well, that's a, that's an interesting thing to say about um, the, the industry has barely begun to truly create inclusive work environments. And that means, I'll just put it very baldly, not everyone who has the meaningful power is a white dude. Like, are we seeing that at the top layers? As we go up each layer, what, are we, what what's going on? What are we seeing up, you know, as we go up the ladders? And I, I'm not, I'm not dissing, um, you know, the, the folks on those ladders at the higher tiers who are from historically excluded groups. And I'm just saying the top gatekeepers look a lot like they did 20 years ago, 30 years ago when I began, when I started out. So it's interesting to me that all of those people who got a shot in the last 10 years who are from historically excluded groups were paid less. I'm just going to say it. Women of color get pennies on the dollars compared to what, you know, white women get. So in that, those patterns that play out in our society absolutely play, pay, play out in the industry. So now what we're seeing is just the latter that people would use to learn their craft and to get to those positions of power or influence or creative leadership, those ladders are just being destroyed no matter who you are. Um, but it's especially harmful for people who are historically excluded. We are at a crisis point. What you have to judge people by is their track record. And what the industry has done for a hundred years is try to not have creative people do stuff you know, and, and or pay them as little as possible, get rid of them, use them up, use them as disposable cannon fodder. Someone online was like, well, why are you mad about, you know, innovation? I'm like, I'm not mad about innovation. I'm mad about the fact that the industry has exploited people for a hundred years and has made exploiting people into a feature, not a bug because, oh, you'll get exposure and it's glamorous and it's cool. You know what? Jennifer Esposito just the other day on social media said she did not make the cutoff to get the SAG-AFTRA healthcare recently. She has been on a number of shows, including Blue Bloods. You know who she is. If you saw a picture of her, you'd know who she was. The cutoff to get the healthcare plan in SAG-AFTRA is earning from SAG-covered jobs $26,000 a year. 87% of SAG-AFTRA actors don't make that. That tells you how little, how few people can actually make a go of this. And they've just reached a point where it's like, now how is it that the CEO of this company is making 30, 40, 50 million in one year, you know, and, and I'm, I'm, I can't, I can't even crack the ceiling that you'd need to make to get healthcare. That's like, that's insane. These disparities are across the American landscape right now, unfortunately. There is money to pay actors. There is money to pay creative people, directors, writers, producers, people who actually make the stuff that we watch. There is money. We just don't want to give it to them. 
Oh, Mo, Ryan. So frustrating, but also I'm so glad to talk to you about it. <laughs> that is the response I get a lot. <laughs> no, thank you for your work and for making time for the waves. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. Anytime. That is our show this week. The Waves is produced by Shana Roth. I am Senior Supervising Producer. Alicia Montgomery is Vice President of Audio. We would love to hear from you. Email us at thewaves at slate.com. The Waves will be back next week. Different host, different topic, same time and place. Hey there. We're going to be talking about And Just Like That for this plus segment. That means there's going to be spoilers. Welcome to The Waves. This is our And Just Like That recap, Episode 8, The Joys of a Pepper Grinder. I'm Shana Roth, Senior Producer at Slate. And I am Heather Schwedell, Staff Writer at Slate. Every week, we're recapping the latest of Season 2 of HBO's Sex and the City sequel series, the fashion, the quips, the WTF moments. And Heather, I am so excited to have you back as we enter into our Aiden era of And Just Like That. We've only got three episodes left after this one. So what have you thought of the season so far? I am really enjoying this season. Um, I think a bunch of the episodes have captured some of the magic of the original show, which is very high praise. And even in its many silly or less good moments, it continues to be a source of delight for me. What about you? I feel like sometimes I am in like a bad relationship with this show in that <laughs> it's not always even good. It's it's definitely usually not great, but I still keep coming back to it. And I keep coming back to it for those moments of joy that we occasionally get in this show, those glimmers of what used to be with Sex in the City. Maybe I'm just too attached to the old Sex in the City, but I'm just, I need more of them going out to brunch. I need more dates. I feel like they haven't had enough dates on this show, which makes me a little bit sad that we're kind of in the Aiden era because Carrie was just starting to date again. And I'm like, I just, I, and I don't want everybody to be in a relationship. Like, come on, I want to live vicariously. Like, let's let's get these people on some bad dates. Yeah, it was definitely so fun when Carrie had that like one off with with the tech guy. That that was so yes. like freewheeling, and then the old Sex in the City was back. And you're right, that didn't last. No, and. Last episode, we even got Miranda going out on a date, and then she wasn't really around this episode. I want to see more of Miranda going out on dates, and we don't even need to have our old three women going out on dates. We've got Naya, we've got uh, Seema, and we're, we didn't see Naya at all this episode, and Seema is just kind of saying how she's feeling bad a little bit that she may never find love. I'm, I just, I'm, I let's get these women on some dates. Let's let them have some fun. Yes, I totally agree. I would love to see more of that. And it is strange how Naya just disappeared or they're, they're not really giving her like a consistent plot line. And, and LTW even was there for like a minute. <laughs> I feel that LTW, Naya, They've really gotten short shrifted this season. It seemed for a little bit there that they were going to get some things to do. But I mean, Naya, especially she pops up to walk around with 
Miranda and to have Souffle alone on Valentine's Day. And that's it. And did we end her marriage for no reason? <laughs> like, we, we have this beautiful single woman now. I know. <laughs> Let's exactly. Let's use it. You've you've torn her heart out. You've made her single. Can we please bring back the hot guy from CSI who was in the first episode that she met at the bar? Let's bring that guy back. Come on. (laughs) Yeah, I would love to see him or or anyone again. Well, let's get into the latest episode of In Just Like That. We're going to do our usual 60-second recap. And Heather, you've drawn the short straw. (laughs) You have to do it this week. Are you ready? I am ready. Okay. And go. Okay. So Aiden is back. And if there was any doubt as to how the last episode ended, they wake up in bed together. It's very intimate, very lovey-dovey. It's clearly they've been holed up in this hotel room for days. Like they are together together. And Carrie is just so into it. She's considering visiting him in Virginia, even though flashback to the original series, that was one of the things that went horribly when she visited his cabin in Suffern. Um, So she's, she's talking up a storm with the girls about how much Things are going great with Aiden, and she wants them to spend time with him. Everyone's excited, except for Seema. We'll get back to that. Oh, and she also tells Miranda she's having the best orgasms of her life. 20 seconds left. Crazy. Um, Oh, Miranda and Charlotte are going back to work. Miranda's an intern at Human Rights Organization, and the younger interns are jealous of the responsibility she's getting. Charlotte wants to dress like she used to, but she's worried about her belly in her back-to-work look. And then Carrie and Aiden are airbnb Che's apartment. Anthony's also there. He has his plotline with this hot Italian guy from last week's episode. Seem- <laughs> Did I run out of time? <laughs> you have run out of time, but given that there was so much going on this episode, I will let you finish. <laughs> okay, thank you. So um, Seema has a new client at work. Seems like he might develop into a love interest later. And we find out at the end of the episode that Seema has been avoiding Carrie because she wanted it to just be the two of them for the summer in the Hamptons. And she's getting all in her feelings about Carrie having someone now. And she wants some space from Carrie and Carrie protests. But in the end, Seema reconsiders and she does go to meet the girls and Aiden in a fabulous sequined suit. (laughs) It was an amazing suit. (laughs) I feel like a lot of this episode got drowned out by the Aiden and Carrie stuff. I mean, I almost forgot that Miranda has this whole separate plot line where she's got a new job, which, by the way, makes no sense because she's been an intern there for like a day. And then all of a sudden the boss says, I'm going on maternity leave and you're going to take over for me. Excuse you, what? I get that Miranda has 30 plus years of experience, but not at your job. <laughs> like, uh-huh. What? One thing I wanted to bring up that, um, with that is it, it just seemed so like sitcom-y the way like the other interns were jealous of Miranda. Like, I don't know, could we have a, a little more nuance and fun with, with that plot line of her being an intern? But I also was wondering, what the hell is a garlic chocolate chip cookie? Have you ever heard of that before? No. So <laughs> gross. What even is is that and i think you've hit on something that was really lacking in that subplot that was bothering me is it just feels like women on women crime it's two women who as far as we know they identify as women being upset that this older more experienced woman is getting more opportunities than they are there was no effort by the two of them to explore that a little bit we got a 
Miranda saying, I'm worried about my privilege. And then it was just brushed aside. I'm honored, but... But what? I, I just can't help but feel bad for Serena and Sloan. They've been here so much longer than I have. It, it, it just doesn't feel fair. Please. I'm guessing you didn't graduate from Harvard first in your class or make partner by feeling bad for less experienced colleagues. Why are you making yourself small now? I'm just very aware that I'm coming into this with a lot of privilege. I appreciate your self-awareness, and that is an issue we take very seriously, but you have 30 years experience, and you're the best person for the job. Full stop. If you want to hear the whole conversation and get all the weekly episodes of our And Just Like That recap, head on over to Slate.com slash The Waves Plus to become a Slate Plus member today. Slate.com slash The Waves Plus. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.